Hey there folks, welcome back to Anti-Monitor. We're suffering from a bit of superhero fatigue, so this week we're taking a left turn into the world of substandard genre flicks with Quentin Tarantino's Death Proof. But first, since Zack Snyder is the bane of our existence, we can't go a single week without some Batman, Superman, Dawn of Disappointment. So kick off your shoes and strap in for this dialogue-filled thrill ride. Oh my gosh, does that suck? <laughs> Man, you are one pathetic loser. You're listening to Anti-Monitor from DoomRocket.com. I knew it, I'm surrounded by assholes. I'm not even going to dignify myself with a response to that. That's right, it is Anti-Monitor time again here at Doom Rocket. I am Matt Birdman Fleming. With me as always is... The delightful Jared Jones, editor-in-chief of DoomRocket.com, and a man who smells himself very often. Only when I don't bathe. Now, thankfully, uh, our table here is a little bit longer on the long side, so I don't, I'm I taking, can't smell you over here. I'm taking a shower right after this, I swear. Well, speaking of things that stink, to mm -hmm. be honest, uh, this week we just sat through the insufferably long, uh, long-winded... Mm. Death Proof by yes. Quentin Tarantino, the uh, Tarantino half of the Grindhouse double feature. Um, one, of the, one of the few times that anyone can ever say Robert Rodriguez really bested Tarantino at making a movie. Mm -hmm. Wouldn't you say that? I would. I think um, we would have been better off with Planet Terror. <laughs> I think that would have been more enjoyable. It was so boring. So boring. Oh. Uh, before we uh, get too deep into Death Proof, we uh, want to catch up on some news. It's been a slow news week. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, relatively. I mean, there's little nuggets here and there, but nothing that really, you know, spins in our wheelhouse. I mean, there's a new Labyrinth movie, and they're shooting another Blade Runner movie. But holy moly, we can't help but gravitate but to one upcoming film. What movie is that, Bird? That would be Batman vs. Superman. Dawn of something, something snore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fill in the joke here. It's a movie that is still coming, despite uh, despite my dire wishes, like the world would just hurry up and end so we could all be spared it. That, that would be a really good uh, tagline for this movie. The movie that won't stop coming. Yeah, it just won't. Um, I I watched the uh, the uh, DC special that they aired uh, on the CW right after the right before the premiere of Legends of Tomorrow. Um, and I have to say, they're pretty good at trumping their own horn, or tooting their own horn. Like, uh, I got myself a little caught up in it. Like, you know, they showed us new Wonder Woman footage, and, uh, you know, they teased The Flash, which is doesn't have, you know, Grant Gustin from the CW, so I don't care. Yeah, they teased the wrong Flash. Yeah, they teased the wrong Flash. But they were showing us, you know, certain clips from Donna Justice and, like, talking about it. And one thing... Uh, most people who work at DC are really, really good at, especially if there's a camera put in front of them, is uh, jerking themselves off. Because once, you know, cameras are on, they they go into this, like, you know, it's it's almost like the speeches were written in the White House. 
They, they're all uniform. They all ostensibly say the same thing. Well, the rich mythology of these characters lends like a darkness and a dire realism that other, you know, superheroes can't afford and all this. And, and we've heard it a thousand times before. You're using words like uh, mythology to justify grim and gritty when, you know, the world keeps saying, that's not what we want anymore. Dark Knight was eight years ago. Let it go. But the one thing about justifying grim and gritty is also at the same time, attempting to justify what they're doing with these characters. Now, now real quick, let me interject. Sure. The uh, DC hype machine mm. is sort of like a monkey grinder. Yeah. And uh, I, I felt like some of those interviews were a lot like the Tom Cruise Scientology video. You know, you get that music in the background. You, you, it feels like you feel like you're, you're being supposed brainwashed. To, you felt like you're being brainwashed into <laughs> thinking something's going to be good. Yeah, and that's about right. You know, in, we live in a world now. We're not in the midst of the uh, Bush era. You know, Middle East quagmires that uh, the Dark Knight trilogy tried to reflect. Yeah, we're in a world where uh, ISIS actually releases videos of murdering. You know, uh, are prisoners. Fucking terrified right now. Can we get a Can we get a break? Yeah. Can we get some happiness and some hope? Right. You in go the to your entertainments to escape, and and we're being asked to walk into a movie that features Superman. That's going to feature, and I shit you not, bird, a Batman that is, and I quote, judge, jury, and executioner. And that's the talking point that we have for this week. Um, I don't know if you heard this news, but producer Charles Roven, who. Uh, not uh, to be confused with Charles Grodin. No, of course not. Um, producer of Donna Justice uh, told Empire Magazine, who just gets all the hot scoops, uh, pr primarily from Warner Brothers, that um, he's, quote, he's more than a vigilante. He has become not only the cop, if you will, he has also become the jury and the executioner, end quote. So it's like um, a lot of people on the internet are applying the, the absolute definition of the word executioner. Oh my God! Is this Batman going to be a killer? And uh, the, the the you know you know how people on the internet tend to overblow things and like, no yeah I, I'm sorry you, you didn't know about that oh man man I uh, guess you must I, I must have some different internet than yeah. you guys well if also if you're interested uh, when we're done with this I, I would like to sell you some real estate on the moon mm. if you're interested but um the uh, the reason why people are getting frustrated with this is because it's just packed on to the heap of bad, you know, uh, bad juju that's going on with this movie. It's like anytime we hear news about these characters in any way, it's not something anyone really wants to hear, except for the nutcases that put Superman and Batman decals on the back of their tricked out Honda Civics. <laughs> it's like for people who actually enjoy these characters, there's nothing really much to cling on to here. And, like, we already know that this Batman's a nutcase that has, like, a bat branding iron in his utility belt, which, because we see that guy with a bat brand on his collarbone, like, I'm trying to picture what the sequence would be like, like, Ben Affleck going, hey, hold on a sec, this takes a minute to heat up, you know, don't go anywhere, you know, and, and it's like, and then it singes the guy, it's like, the fuck is this? Now, maybe that's what Rovin means, because mostly people in Hollywood are so far up their own ass that they forget what words actually mean, and so they're just using it as, like, a... Uh, metaphoric well, execution yeah exactly like he's, like he's going to execute yeah. a plan he's going to execute this plan against Superman he's right? going to execute an order <laughs> for pizza he's the... hey hold on a minute <laughs> if they're not here in 30 minutes we get it for free uh, I can picture that phone call that'll do 
the clock's ticking, dude. <laughs> but uh, it's just frustrating to me to like have to have conversations with human beings who use these words literally. It's like, no, man, they said it. Batman's going to be a killer on it. Like, I'm looking well, at this. I mean, He's got to stand up to Superman. Well, Superman will snap his neck if he gets too angry. And listen to the language that Ben Affleck's using in those trailers. Tell me, do you bleed? You will. Holy shit. He's like, do you bleed? Yeah, do you bleed? That son of a bitch brought the war to us. Like, he's like, he's forming like a, like a coalition of the not so willing. Like, Alfred's like, he's not our enemy. And he's like, yeah, well, okay. whatever. This doesn't seem like a Batman that's consumed with the pursuit of justice. No, at all. It sounds like a Batman consumed with Paranoia. retribution. Retribution. And, uh, you know, uh, commanding vengeance. Mm -hmm. Well, he draws, obviously, the most parallels to Frank Miller's Batman from The Dark Knight Returns, who had been around long enough in the world to finally just have it with people. He's just like, I've had it. I'm not hiding behind any codes anymore. I'm doing this, and my war on justice is going to be brutal and swift, and holy shit, you're never going to see me coming. Um, but that's not the Batman. That's a Batman. One Batman. That's one Batman. And like, Because there was another Batman mm -hmm. who, every time he punched something, cartoons happened. Yeah, who had a hell of a time getting rid of bombs. Yeah. Like, you know, not the most effectual Batman, but he was a Batman. Now, it can be argued that we had that Batman. With two films, uh -huh. Forever and Robin. Like, those are the heightened versions of the Joel Schumacher, or uh, the uh, 60s camp uh, TV show, right? Correct. And we can also argue that, like, we had the gothic overtones of, like, Tim Burton, who also borrowed quite liberally from the Frank Miller tones. So it's like, are we doing this again because Christopher Nolan told a Batman story that was kind of unique and different? Like, daring to tell a new Batman story within the confines of itself? How unique, Bird! Instead, now they're trying to like adapt from one part of a deep like DC's history, which isn't even actually fucking canon. That's the one thing that really like galls me. It's like, so are we doing the Dark Knight universe here? Well, no, we're gonna do this here, and then we're gonna do that over there, and they're just kind of stirring the pot, and it totally just makes no sense. Well, there's nothing canonical about this Man of Steel uh, cinematic. DCU. Yes. Nothing canonical about it. Well, it's canon for the films it's, now. But now it's fodder, mm -hmm. is what it is. <laughs> it's fodder for the films. It's And it's uh, it, it's beyond dark and gritty. Yeah. It, I, I'm so tired of watching the trailers and seeing all the sepia, seeing the, all the photos. When they showed that photo of the future Justice League mm -hmm. and all that sepia tone... I'm just like, I can't take any of this seriously. See the sky? The clouds were black. The it clouds looks were black. It looks dystopic. It looks like a future where a bunch of terrible stuff happens, and then Batman and Superman murder their way out of it. Yeah. And now we're all screwed. But, but what uh, I, you know, they're heroes, right? Look, look, this guy just came out of the water. And uh, look, yeah. there's Wonder Woman. Well, well, you guys like Woman. her. You're looking at uh, the the footage of Wonder Woman that came with this uh, this uh, documentary uh, TV show thing that DC put out, and like you're looking at the footage of Wonder Woman, and it's exciting because you're watching Wonder Woman. What a novel concept! But once you get over like uh, that that immediate like, yeah, that's awesome. Um, you notice that visually, Wonder Woman looks almost identical to Man of Steel, mm -hmm. and that the skies are always gray, the sunshine hasn't come out yet. You know, it might rain, you never know. 
and like it, it it's like she's got a grimace on her face like Wonder Woman can fly I hope I hope we haven't seen her fly no nope, she can see fly, her ride a horse maybe maybe a shot of her in the sky with the clouds and some sunshine this is what worries me about that Wonder Woman footage well you it's got? very brown mm-hmm. you know what else is brown doo doo yeah <laughs> and what an interesting parallel right uh, so. It's inarguable that the biggest drawing point for a lot of people with Wonder Woman is that you have this amazing, badass woman mm-hmm. who can stand up alongside Batman and Superman and be like, nah, me. Mm-hmm. I can whoop, whoop all these bad bad dudes. I think about um, like the greatest DC stories ever told that aren't associated with Frank fucking Miller, and um, I think of a story called Kingdom Come. Mm-hmm. Um, dark dystopic future, check. You know, evil superheroes, not evil, but like anti-heroes pretty much. You know, punching and accidentally murdering and lots of collateral damage, check. You know, this series of films is in keeping with the Snyderverse so well that I would almost like to see that movie get made because I know that at least they would get the tone right. But one thing, if you were to read Kingdom Come and notice, is that throughout all this doom and gloom is the optimism that Superman has. It's arguably one of the best Superman stories ever told. But he doesn't get to these concepts alone. He arrives as a guiding light that instigates Armageddon, inadvertently. Hmm. But they overcome it, spoilers, through the aid of some some, some of his justice buddies. Primarily that, primarily that of Wonder Woman. Wonder Woman... Is there just kind of like, you're back, you're acting like a fucking chump. Get it together, Kent. Like, what is your problem, man? Like, Superman is like, well, the burden's on me to make sure that, everybody, that I'm leaving. She's like, no, no, no. It's not like that. You're, you're the symbol. You don't have to be the leader. Just lead by example. Do what's right. Don't do what people expect of you. And it's like, her function... Her sole function in that entire thing is, one, to kick the shit out of Batman because he's turned into a real dick. Okay. Two, make Superman a better person than he ever was while she, in turn, embraces who she is, which is an Amazonian warrior who could soundly trounce both Superman and Batman, no problem. Um, that's If you're going to tell that kind of story, make sure... Oh, that's the one thing that's just giving me that little shred of hope right here, Bertie, is that Batman vs. Superman, written by Chris Terrio, who gave us Argo, which I liked, a lot of characters in it, a lot of nuance in it, surprisingly. I enjoyed Argo. And I'm hoping that he, against hope, that he's going to imbue uh, Donna Justice with a little bit of this, because if he doesn't, then all we have is these guys smashing against each other on their way towards Justice League. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, you know, uh, it, it's I'm kind of over watching gore and murder all the time. All the time. Every once in a while, it's great. Yeah. I love it. Sparsely here and there mm-hmm. as a seasoning, you know. I don't like to eat salt. Yeah, I like a little bit of salt, maybe a little bit of pepper. I don't chew on peppercorns. I, get that. I don't chew on the seasonings. No, the story is like a sandwich. Sure, you know, has layers. Mm-hmm. It has different flavors that interact to tell an entire sandwich. It's a zeitgeist it, sandwich unto itself. A zeitgeist sandwich. Yeah, yeah. I'm just worried that this uh, Dawn of Justice is going to be. Just a big old load of poopy smelling salt. So the one thing I'm struggling with right now, because it's coming, mm-hmm. like we've got what? 
Oh. Seven weeks? Six? Jeez. Coming? It's coming. Do we... Do I just write a review for this thing, or do we do... Do we give it the anti-monitor treatment? That's a good question. We might have to wait to see... Uh, we might have to wait to see it. We'll be there. We'll be previewing it by watching Man of Steel for sure. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Well, speaking of murder, yeah, let's get on to the uh, murder-filled <laughs> gore fest that we watched today. Uh -huh. And when I say gore fest, I mean snore fest, yeah. bore fest. Holy Moses! And you know, death proof. Yeah, one half of a really fun concept. Yeah, Robert Rodriguez, Quentin Tarantino, two of the '90s hot shot directors maverick filmmakers maverick filmmakers maverick uh you know new they were like the new auteurs in that they were like imbuing everything with their own signatures and robert rodriguez is he's like i don't care about hollywood i'm gonna set up camp in austin and i'm gonna make movies with you know the limited resources but it's just gonna be all about fun and tarantino's like hey man i've seen the thousands of movies that nobody's ever heard of or seen before. I'm going to make a bunch of movies out of those. And, you know, they, give, uh, they gave cinema in the 90s a nice swift kick in the rear. They really did. And both being big genre heads, mm -hmm. they say, like, hey, why don't we do something fun? Why don't we do a double, a double feature together? You know, they, uh, this came out after Sin City. Yes. So this is after there was already a little bit of like playing around mm -hmm. together uh, with that movie. They also collaborated in other rounds, like uh, uh, Rodriguez, uh, like Tarantino directed his bit in Sin City for a buck. Rodriguez did part of the score for Kill Bill for a buck, mm -hmm. like that kind of shit. Uh, well, and of course, you know, uh, From Dusk Till Dawn. Of course, one of my all-time favorite movies. Absolutely. Oh, without a doubt. Definitely yeah. one of Rodriguez's like, top three. Like. Rodriguez-wise, we could talk about him for just a sec. Yeah. He's made three of my all-time favorite movies. Mm -hmm. El Mariachi. Yes. Planet Terror. Okay. From Dust Till Dawn. Mm. Those are, like, if I had to write a hundred film list, all three of them are in there. Yeah. I don't know where I'd put them specifically, but I know that From Dust Till Dawn is definitely up in the 15 to 1 percentile. Oh, wow. That's good. Yeah, I love that movie. I'm, I've been uh, more or less a fan of Rodriguez for a long time. Mm -hmm. um, I have a soft spot for Once Upon a Time in Mexico. I know you do. Uh, it's it's weird. It's weird. I I like a lot of these uh, kind of gaudy mm -hmm. and simple movies that are just kind of dumb, fun, full of guns. Yeah, but we know he can do it with like wit mm -hmm. and like uh, like really shrewd filmmaking like he can bring it all together to be like this package deal of like high cinema i think when you watch like el mariachi and desperado and you watch both those movies and go god damn those are some serious movies oh yeah absolutely and then you go see once upon a time in mexico and you're like oh what what that's, happened that's here? where he loses did he take acid at some point and break and, and when his brain reassembled itself it was like we lost something in the, in the i think he just gets kind of bored and was just like, ah, fuck it. Enrique Iglesias, get mm -hmm. over here. So finally we come back to Death Proof, where, like, you know, Tarantino and Robert Rodriguez had their salad days during the 90s. Like, we got some really amazing films. We already listed a few of Robert Rodriguez's. Quentin Tarantino, everyone knows the list. Yep. There's Four Dogs, Pulp Fiction, 
Jackie Brown Jackie my all-time. Brown, come on. See, now, Jackie Brown was so ding-dang good. Yeah. That, that is the high-water mark he set. He, it, it, like, everyone loves Pulp Fiction, and I do too. Do not get me wrong, but Jackie Brown, I love just a little bit more for a couple reasons. One, it's his least indulgent movie. It's his only attempt at just making a, a movie. See, when people were uh, spinning around rumors that like Tarantino was going to make a DC movie or a Star Wars movie or a James Bond movie, like it seems impossible or improbable even to think about now. But back in those days when he was adapting an Elmore Leonard novel, yeah, you could see him play with other people and get along just fine. He took Rum Punch and made Jackie Brown out of it. Yep. Like, holy, mo- what would he do to James Bond? Like, I, I would love to know that, but not the Tarantino we have today. No. Um, we recently saw a beautiful, magnificent screening of uh, The Hateful Eight yep. at the Music Box Theater here in Chicago. And um, even though I know in my heart and soul that like, if I ever want to see a film shot in film properly, Quentin mm-hmm. Tarantino is the director I would choose. Absolutely. As far as storytelling is concerned anymore... He's I'd, kind of gone off the rails. He needs an anchor. He needs a co-writer. Like, I mean, I don't remember what kind of relationship fallout thing that occurred with him. With like, him and Roger Avery? Yeah, during Pulp Fiction, but mm-hmm. like, holy cow, like, those two working together and then working apart night and day. Yeah, absolutely. Like, Tarantino got very, uh, he, he became richer somehow, like Jackie Brown, and then he like slapped us with Kill Bill Volumes 1 and 2, and it's like, fuck, okay. And then Avery went on to do like, what? Uh, he did the rules Killing of attraction Zoe and Killing Zoe, right? Yeah, yeah. And um, both I, movies easily forgettable. I I would say that the rules of attraction uh, is it lives in a it lives in a very specific time where like Fight Club and a lot of those other kind of like Donnie Darko nihilistic uh, pseudo comedy action that, that like yeah turn of the century kind of. The Rules of Attraction does some really fun things, but yeah, Roger Avery never worked by himself as well as he did in conjunction with Tarantino. And so that's what you get with the first uh, four or five Tarantino films. You have collaboration, you have adaptation, Mm -hmm. and then you have Kill Bill. Kill Bill is, my opinion, the high point of Tarantino putting it all together, where he's being very fantastic, he is showing his panache with the camera, he's telling a revenge story, which is his favorite kind of story, and it's visually outstanding and just just bloated enough. And then after that, it the the bloat and the experimentation and the self uh. The self-flagelling, and not like in a Mel Gibson sort of way either. Like in a like we're watching Quentin Tarantino in his bedroom during the daytime, with mm-hmm. like a pizza box next to him, and like the windows closed, and some Jergens and a box of Kleenex. Like we're watching him do that, and we've been watching him do it for a long time now. But I think what kind of paved the way to be like uh, that this is totally acceptable was Kill Bill. Mm-hmm. It's like oh. Like we can, ha- I can now make the movies I always loved when I was growing up, and I can make them, and people will pay through the nose to see it. It's true. So we get Grindhouse. Yep. To bring it all back around. Well, because it was a 50-50 shot on whether you'd be going left or right. You see, we're both going left. 
could have just as easily been going left too. And if that was the case, it would have been a while before you started getting scared. But since you're going the other way, I'm afraid you're gonna have to start getting scared immediately. Ed Grindhouse is two films filled with wonderful, really stupid trailers that spawned a sequel or, or, a, or a spin A couple spin-offs. Yeah. Like uh, there was a... There's multiple machetes. Multiple machetes and then there was the uh, Rector Hauer one. Yeah. Hobo, uh, with, Hobo a, with a shotgun. Hobo with a shotgun and then I think that was it. They were going to make Thanksgiving. They were going to make Thanksgiving. Um, that was the uh, Edgar Wright. Mm -hmm. yeah. and, um, and then there was the, uh, the Rob Zombie She-Wolves of the, oh, yeah, the SS. SS. Yeah. Um, all wonderful concepts. All wonderful in their execution. And then we get to the second half of Bryant House. Death Proof. Now, I saw Death Proof at the Showcase Cinemas in Ann Arbor. Oh, yeah. I think you did, too. I don't know if we saw it together. Uh, no. no. I, don't think, I so. think I, I think I might have actually seen it, um, like, at one of the other Ann Arbor mm -hmm. theaters. But I saw it there, so I got the abridged version. I don't know if they ever screened the full version of both. I'm I don't sure. think they did. But um, they did the theatrical uh, cut versions of Planetaire trailers, Death Proof. So when I finally got to Death Proof, I had to pee like a mother because hmm. there was no intermission during that thing. But I finally like uh, piss off, literally, yeah. come back to the theater, and I'm in I'm just in a swamp of talking, not in like a cool expository Reservoir Dogs getting to know you kind of way, but in just like this god awful smattering of terrible actors, overloaded with Quentin Tarantino dialogue, like. Tarantinoisms being fired from the rooftops at these totally ineffectual actresses that just could not handle the, 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 the weight of all these words. So when it comes out, I was, it was painful, I was wincing, and like I have to remember the point. I had to constantly reorient myself when I first saw this movie. I'm like, it is supposed to be a shitty grindhouse movie, Jared. Deal with it. Because if you go back, like I own a few, you see them. I've got a Gorgor Girls. I've got a Club Vampire. I got some real shit stains in my uh, DVD collection. I am no stranger to bad movies. Oh yeah, or, or schlock movies. I love them. I'm I'm a huge fan of schlock, of exploitation, mm. of but you know the the thing with uh, bad good movies mm -hmm. is they weren't bad on purpose. They weren't seeking out to emulate some sort of badness. Right. It was just. People making movies, movies that had the money to make them somehow made them didn't make any money back, died of a cocaine overdose. And that was the story of it. You know, I highly recommend both to you and to any listeners to watch Electric Boogaloo, the yeah. canon story yeah, on Netflix, because it's really fascinating and it puts a lot of stuff into perspective. Because mm -hmm. you look at what's being put out today, you think in your head about independent film and about like. Uh, the boom that we had with that. Yeah. Well, like the 60s and 70s, that was just when it was becoming accessible and people could just make movies. Yeah. You had tiny studios mm -hmm. just making whatever bullshit they could come up with. Yeah. Because if you turn it out, film got cheaper. And if you turn them out, turn them out, turn them out, you're going to make enough money. You're going to end up with something that's subpar, but people will still sit and watch it. People won't do that now. Mm -hmm. People will go out of their way to make 
death proof no. to make something that tries to emulate what was great and classic about bad good movies. Unless you're Bob and Harvey Weinstein, who seem just financially uh, uh, capable of uh, indulging every single whim that Tarantino has. Yeah, absolutely. They, I, there is no. There's no Tarantino without the wine scenes. There's no wine scenes without the Tarantino at this point. That's because, totally true at that point. Because, uh, you know, and that's another one. I read the book um, all about the evolution of Sundance and Miramax and mm -hmm. all of this. Uh, that was Down in Dirty Pictures. That's yeah, it. I've read that. Yeah. Um, really fascinating book, primarily when it comes to, like, the Weinsteins, like, pounding auteurs mm -hmm. against, like, their, um, their investors' best wishes. It's like, we want the shirt deal. We want to put our money behind this. You're investing all this cash in like these like you know esoteric offerings from Sundance and Cannes. Can't really afford them. Not getting a big turnaround for them. You get one hit from Quentin Tarantino, and now all you can do is just get that guy money, even when you don't have it. That's right. And Miramax was hemorrhaging cash when they were indulging Tarantino back in the '90s. But you know they got the accolades, they got the Oscar noms, and that's what, that was the ascension. That was what was driving everything. That was what was inspiring Bob and Harvey to make you know bigger. Uh, dares like you know dimension films like Robert Rodriguez's home basically mm -hmm. for the longest time. As a matter of fact, I think that the Machete movies are still being made under the Dimension banner. I think so. Pretty much the only film that is these days. But um, we wouldn't have a lot of the movies were it not for Quentin Tarantino, you know, uh, uh, Kevin Smith, uh, other uh, Stephen Soderbergh, other mm -hmm. directors that uh, Miramax was really all about. But Soderbergh has gracefully retired from film. Uh, Kevin Smith, we're waiting for him. He keeps saying he will, but he keeps making shit like yoga hosers. But Quentin Tarantino's like, I'm going to make 10 movies. I'm just going to make 10 of them. An arbitrary number to some. Um, probably something that's really uh, filled with intent for him. Where are we headed with these flicks? So we come back to Death Proof, and I ask myself, what was the inherent point of this? Beyond trying to recapture... Uh, a, a time long since passed. Yeah, you know, really, that's it. It's it's uh, these two directors, roughly in the same age bracket, that came along during the advent of the VHS mm -hmm. um, as two people who have long worked in in the past in the uh, various fields of film video exhibition, rental. video <laughs> rental, and movie theater. Home <laughs> exhibition makes it sounds like we like break into people's houses, flash them, run right out. It's it was sort of like that, but, me out. but it was backwards. Yeah. You know, guests come in and they go uh, in the theater and wank off to mm -hmm. home for the holidays. That's an actual story, by the way. That actually happened. That happened. Or you know, expose themselves in the uh, porno room. in the porno room. That but, happened too. Um, so you can argue that for you and I, mm. uh, the symbiotic relationship between those experiences between ready access to a great library of, you know, archived film, which is where Tarantino came from, yep. or uh, easy, quick, cheap access to every single theatrical release that came out within a certain scope, you know, uh, that's the same kind of, that's the relationship with that and our love and hate relationship with cinema, with film. I think that they're inherently tied together, and that's kind of the same realm that Rodriguez and Tarantino came from. Mm -hmm. Note, 
for those listening, I just compared myself and Jared to Robert Rodriguez and Tarantino. Look, if we were sitting in a round table having a conversation and dorking out, we would all pretty much sound exactly the same. Yeah, but um, big nerds. Big time nerds. But the problem going beyond that is th- this was a project that didn't take a whole lot of time to make. Like, Rob, Rod- Rodriguez, from what I understand, kind of went overtime mm-hmm. to make Planet Terror, but like a lot of sets, a lot of makeup. A lot of characters, a lot of juggling. Quentin Tarantino looked like he was on fucking vacation when he made this movie. Everyone did. They're all hanging out in Austin. So, you know, they're all crashing at, you know, Rodriguez's crib, you know, getting wasted the night before and then, like, showing up drinking, hungover. Drinking all the chartreuse. Because all the sets are, like, Bueros, which is an actual place in Austin where you that, sit and have that, tacos. That I've, eat, I've yeah. eaten and consumed margaritas in. You, you speak very highly of. So they're like... Okay, time to shoot. Let's go eat tacos and margarita, drink margaritas. Yeah, um, let's go to the Texas Chili House and right. get loaded on chartreuse and 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 fictional nacho drinks. grande platters. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Pretty much, they're just hanging around chilling. And you know, they're actually imbibing. There's no way that they weren't. I mean, maybe they weren't. Not all of them, but like there were times where like they're just like slinging back drinks, and I'm like, probably real. Yeah, because now. These actresses, uh, Sydney Poitier Junior. Jr., I suppose, <laughs> who is remarkably lousy as Jungle Julia. Oh yeah, she's she got her father's jawline and none of his acting <laughs> yeah, talent. Exactly. Um, we're given scenes where she can sit and stare at a phone, like an a flip old phone, flip phone, an old flip phone, which kind of takes us out of like you know any kind of period setting or anything like that. Because we got the cars. Austin's looking kind of I don't know from what particular angle you could probably sell it as like a 70s era but um when you have just her staring at the uh the cell phone for the crucial text message scene <laughs> where like the score changes for it the camera uh, <laughs> angles change dramatically for it yeah they interrupt they interrupt jeepster for this yeah. little little yeah oh, she's got a text flirt with Chris something or another. Like, like he spent the last five minutes, like, building up, like, a, like, not five minutes, like, two minutes of uh, building up an atmosphere with, like, T-Rex in the background going, da, 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 boom, boom, boom. Like, and you're all into it. And oh, you're like, yeah, this is gonna be fun. Screen. Yeah, I'm digging this. And then all of a sudden, everything stops. Dun. So she can look at her phone and, like, send a text message to a stranger that we never see <laughs> or hear about again. And, and that's the end of that. So I ask you, was Tarantino deliberately... Um, putting in useless subplots to a film because uh, he knew it would go nowhere, or, or, or did he actually have that much control over this screenplay? Um, I think that this, I think a lot of what bothered me with Death Proof is there's a, a lot of excessive just Tarantino, uh, like Tarantino's journal, where he just comes up with conversations that he wants to fit into a movie. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he's got pages and pages and pages ripped out from that journal that go into the pile of didn't make it in. Mm -hmm. And this movie was his opportunity to just pull those old pages of stuff that didn't get in to anything else he's made. Yeah. Stuff that didn't really fit. Yeah. Especially because he is given his first truly... um, yeah, I mean, there's obviously a lot of female presence in Kill Bill. This is like his first chance to just like Tarantino to feminist, Tarantino women, yeah. and to really show what he thinks women 
really want or what women are really like. Well, it should be at this point. I should mention that we watched this with MJ, associate editor Molly Jane Kramer. Also happens to be a woman. Also happens to be a woman. Um, enjoyed the movie considerably. So um, when you and, and she always did. Um, but the thing is, um, and this is probably me speaking beyond myself. Actually, it definitely is. But when I, a man is trying to write for a woman, mm-hmm. he's either a resounding success or a failure. There's no middle ground. Not much it. middle ground. Because he's putting dialogue into their mouths that would have sounded more at home at, in, like, say, Michael Madsen's mouth or, like, uh, fucking, you know, Steve Buscemi or, yeah. or, or something <laughs> like that. Like, you know, really snarky, really biting, really scathing. Which I'm not saying that you can't do that with female characters. But when you're trying to stick the landing with all these missives just being hurled at each other, um, you better make sure those actors are up for the challenge, and these four women were not. Now, that's just the first half of the movie. That's right. The second half bears much better. Mm. Yes. Better actors. Yes. Far better actors. Far more control. I mean, he jettisons like the film, uh, the fake phony film grit that he digitally uh, added to it, and right. then just shoots standard film. Every once in a while, he would... He throws, like, a little... Uh, scratch here, or, yeah, like, a bloop there, just to remind us that he didn't forget. <laughs> or maybe he didn't even... Sh- he forgot. Oops, Oops, I better do that again. Yeah. But beyond that, like, the second half of Death Proof is far more linear, far more cohesive, still a raging snoozer, but, like, once it gets down to it, and we have that, like, you know, dual, like, you know, uh, muscle machines raging down, you know, the Tennessee Highway... Like, that's when it really becomes a movie. Mm-hmm. The problem is, that's an hour and a half into the movie, and there's only 20 minutes left. So for those full 20 minutes, you're getting some real, like, supercharged cinema. And the ace in the hole, Zoe Bell, not an actress, but a hell of a stunt worker, and, and the sense that she made will literally squirt, make you squirm in your seat and flip out. It's like, how are you doing this and not dying? And those are reactions that the characters actually have in the film. Yeah, and that's... Uh, this that's where death proof succeeds mm-hmm. is when it is um when it, it is at its basic uh when it was achieving its point of being a scary racing genre movie yeah it's all the bloat of tarantino having to get women to talk to each other about stuff and like it's his idea of how women speak to each other about sex and dicks and making out mm-hmm. and that's all they seem to be able to talk about well that's primarily true i've i've had a couple of windows in my life where i've just sat back and like as the male in the room and just felt like i'm like oh that was like my awakening when i was a teenager i'm like oh women are people too they talk oh, about peepees and wee wees just like the rest of us <laughs> i don't feel alone in my depravity finally but i mean you're absolutely right when Tarantino tries to do it, it sounds fucking phony. Like, big time. And, like, oh, God, just, like, the way they have to shit out the dialogue through their mouths, it's like, especially it's, Jungle Julia, it's like, I wanted to just, like, rip my eardrums out of my, my head and just be like, I want to die now. Can I die? Can I go? Is yeah. that it? Because this is driving me nuts. Like, if Kurt Russell wasn't in the middle of this movie being awesome. Being and awesome. If Rose McGowan didn't show up too in the middle of the movie just to show everyone how to actually do it. I would have thought this whole thing was a colossal failure. Like I would, if I had to give, because I don't do star, star yeah. scales, but if I had to, I'd give like a two out of five 
and and walk away from it only because Rose McGowan and Kurt Russell. Uh, and and Rosario Dawson's pretty awesome in it. Rosario Dawson's good. Zoe Bell. Kills Zoe Bell it. when she's not talking. Yeah, when, when she's, she's not trying to right. pal around. Right. Um. But like everyone else, they're just friends of Quentin Tarantino, and Robert Rodriguez. They're like people that they know. And I'm only presuming this, but it feels natural because they're all so damn comfortable with each other. Now I don't know if that's acting or if that's just people chilling. I can't tell the difference. I don't smoke pot. I don't know what the hell's going on, but everyone seems like real laid back, super chill. Yep. And uh, it, uh, I've never been to Austin, I don't think. I have. It's great. I'm sure you have. If it's an iota of what I saw in this movie, I'm never going. Because <laughs> that shit would drive me... I'm way too wound tight for that. Way too wound tight. And that's the thing about this movie. So I'm too wound tight just to sit back and watch these people like talk some jive for an hour and a half until the good stuff happens. I mean, you know... the. You could, you could argue that this movie uh, would have worked better as one of the trailers in the middle of something, or just mm -hmm. you cut Death Proof into a trailer. You play the trailers before Planet Terror, and there you go. Yeah, that's that's it, Grindhouse. That's your movie. Um, also, can we talk about Quentin Tarantino's fetish? Because okay. everybody knows mm -hmm. that Tarantino has a thing for the ladies' feet. Yep. Or feet in general. He does a lot of feet shots. So pretty, he uh, does gender feet specific. shots in general, but, but mm -hmm. it's very well known. He's got a thick In the annals now. of uh, Hollywood lore, that he gets a little creepy feet. with the feet. And, it, and, and that creepiness hits an apex in this movie. Like, there's that moment... When, like, the movie's black and white for some fucking reason, for no reason whatsoever. And, like, Rosario Dawson's got her feet dangling out of the car. And she's she's sleeping, sleeping, sleeping in the back of a car. And Kurt Russell's, like, licking her toes as lightly as he Just possibly Just tickling and sniffing. And... and it's like, you know Kurt Russell didn't walk to the set that day and go, I finally get to do this. He didn't, you know, walk, he didn't walk in and say, hey there, Quentin. I got a real good idea for something <laughs> stuntman Mike would do yeah. if he saw a couple of feet over here. He'd go up and he'd tickle them. <laughs> and then he'd go up and he'd sniff them and then he'd lick them. <laughs> and then he'd pretend he dropped his car keys. That's not what happened. That's not what happened. Quentin Tarantino, Quentin Tarantino <laughs> had the nerve to say, Kurt Russell, America's treasure. The last two words to come out of Walt Disney's mouth, yeah. Kurt Russell, star <laughs> of such classic films as Overboard, mm -hmm. Captain Ron, yeah. Escape from New York, oh, there's one. Big Trouble in Little China. Okay, too. I'm sorry, were you dismerching the uh, two greatest cinematic boat comedies? Yeah, boat comedies starring <laughs> Kurt Russell. Uh, Quentin Tarantino had the nerve to go up to him and say, all right, Kurt, this is what I need you to do. I need you to go, <laughs> I can't can't even do it. I need you to go over to Rosaria Dawson. She's going to be over there and I need you to stick on her feet and sniff her feet and give them a little bit of a lick. <laughs> and then Tarantino's like, and if you don't think you can do it, let me show you how to do it. Let me really direct you. I'm the actress director. All right, hold mm -hmm. on, Rosario. I'm going to tickle your feet. Oh, that's so gross. Like, I picture him like kind of like a sleazy porno uh, director. Like, he's shooting it, and he's sitting in his director's chair, he's just kind of rubbing himself a little bit, hoping no one will notice. The finger, just like at the tip. 
He's just got like, his producer right it's next like, yeah, to him. He's he's sitting on the shot of uh, Sidney Poitier's feet. <laughs> Let me keep reminding people: this is Sidney Poitier's daughter, daughter, whose Legendary name is Sidney Poitier. Yeah. Uh, she it, so many times in the first half of the movie, the camera just lingers on her feet a little bit too long, and I know what he's trying to do. He's trying to be a perverted 70s lurid filming yeah but instead no it's like the producer needs to like slap him in the back of the head and say come on Dude, move the camera move the camera he's just like super drooling yeah Ooh, toes toes it's like the only time quentin tarantino slows down and, and doesn't speak a mile a minute is yeah. when there are feet in his face exactly. he's just like so just i'd be drooling. really fascinated like you know um uh there are these uh wonderful books uh wonderful uh or biographies written by you know film critics who get to interview uh, classic film stars and they tell their entire life stories to them and they write down the good stuff and leave the dirty stuff out. Like I would love to have that job later in my life, and, like interview like Mina Sabari or Sofia Coppola and go, so talk to me about <clears throat> about Quentin Tarantino. What was it like? Yeah. To be with such a legendary filmmaker and don't hold back. Break out the box of Kleenex. Make sure that I'm ready with a glass of water. Or a bucket for you to bucket throw up in. <laughs> throw up in, and just see what like like what's really hiding behind that man's eyes because he's a nut, he's a total nut, and I love him for it. But at the same time, there are parts of him that make me severely uneasy. It's my relationship to Tarantino is so weird because this is the only Tarantino movie that I don't that I can't get into. Mm-hmm. Top to top to bottom, mm-hmm. and it's a movie filled with beautiful women and exciting action, and, and Kurt Russell, and Kurt Russell, arguably one of my five favorite actors of all time. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and we have differing opinions about Inglorious Bastards. Um, I I gave The Hateful Eight a really good review for what it did cinematically, and uh, I've heard arguments with various people. About the bad parts, and I uh, acknowledge that they exist. But the review you wrote would have been the one I would have written was dramatically different than the one you wrote. True. Um, I, I hear you when it talks about the uh, the bad parts of the hateful eight. Mm-hmm. The bad parts of the hateful eight are exactly like the bad parts in Death Proof, and there's no like no one no one edges themselves out. It's a dead heat. Yeah. Because they're both overt. I mean we. Were, I'm going to be using the word indulgent a lot here, folks. They're both inherently indulgent. They serve only the the, the filmmaker himself. Even when he's trying to, like, squeeze in some tenured, you know, social commentary in it, it, you can't embrace it because it's so heightened. Mm -hmm. It's so heightened because no one fucking talks like this. You, You can't find realism in a Tarantino film because it doesn't exist. All you can find is humanity. And the only time you're going to find humanity is when he chills out and stops indulging himself and actually embraces the storyteller part of his brain. When that happens, you get Jackie Brown. When that happens, you get the best parts of, like, true romance or, or uh, pulp fiction. But, like, when you get Death Proof and you get Hateful Eight or Inglorious Bastards or Django Unchained or any of these later career Tarantino movies, you only get one thing. You get the movie he wants. Yeah. Not the film he, that, that, that ought to be made, the film he wants to be made. And it's uh, stylistic overload. Mm-hmm. And the, this movie, Death Proof, is just, it's unfocused. It's a bad excuse for to take a vacation to Texas and <laughs> then just 
kind of phone in the second half and like, uh, we're going to pretend California's Tennessee and we're going to yeah. just drive around and, yeah. uh, and you know, uh, Kurt Russell's going to antagonize these poor girls and then they're going to chase him down and beat his ass. Yeah. And that's the story. If, if it weren't for, um, the parks father and son duo little interjection where they are like, I think he, I think you did that on purpose. Well, what are you going to do about it? Nothing. Nothing. If it weren't for that, <laughs> the movie would, they ain't going to do it in Texas no more. Yeah. Uh, and like you shrink out some of the just girls talking and which is fine. That's no, there's no story advancement. It's just like one time Kurt Russell murdered these four girls and, that, and, and then later he tried to do it again, yeah. but failed. Failed. That's, that's the movie. Yeah. And um, that's not, that's not what a presumed horror thriller from the 70s is anything like. Well, let's explore that for a second. Let's think about like some of the most famous you know, schlock, Schlockmeister uh, movies made during the late 70s, early 80s. Like you got The Hills, the Hills Have Eyes. You have uh, First Friday the 13th. You got... Uh, Last House on the Left. Last House on the Left. One I thing, spit on your grave. One thing that they all have is that the antagonist is very efficient and effective at wreaking havoc. Stuntman Mike is not an effective madman. He's good at driving, and he uses it weird. But he's a really charismatic guy. Not in a frightening Freddy Krueger char charisma kind of way, either. It's like, I could get drunk with you, have a fist fight with you, and then swear never to talk to you again. Easy. That's the kind of character Stuntman Mike is, if he drank. No, but instead he's... He's, he's a teetotaler. Uh, 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 he's... <laughs> A guy who just loves a virgin pina colada mm -hmm. and it just gets off on murdering pretty girls that aren't wearing shoes. Now, uh, it could be argued that like when he's trying to get that lap dance, he's laying it on super duper thick, but he still succeeds in getting what he wants. He's not creeping them anyone out the door like, we have to get away, we have to remove ourselves from this from this, this person. He's awful. Like, there's none of that happening. You know how people say, you're okay in my book, or... And my book, that's no good. Well, I actually have a book. And everybody I ever meet goes in this book. And now I've met you, and you're going in the book. <laughs> Except, I'm afraid I must file you under chicken shit. No, he does charm his way into he, he charms getting and a get, lap dance. And that could be unsettling unto itself. And, I mean, granted, these girls are all high and drunk and, you know, uh, probably actually high and drunk actresses at that mm -hmm. point. And it's like, that's the next thing Tarantino says. All right, now, so now all I need you to do is give Kurt Russell a lap dance. And Kurt Russell, I need you to get a lap dance and not get a boner. Wow, that's like, and we watch it happen. And, and the song, so the music's so good, so you don't care because the song's like, yeah, I can get down with this. Um, but um, what keeps Stuntman Mike from being one of my all-time favorite Quentin Tarantino characters is that he has nothing to do that justifies his character. Because one minute he's like this uh, charming marauder, and the next minute he's a homicidal maniac. Yeah, like there's no connection there. The, the closest thing Quentin Tarantino can do to giving this man a story and a, a characteristic 
is by giving him a scar and having him sort of go like, well, I was in all this stuff, but then... Mm -hmm. And it's like, listen, dude, you're not making a cinematic universe where you get more stuntman Mike. You're not going to get a stuntman Mike origin story. Just give us a good character. Give him a reason to uh, hate, presumably, beautiful women who don't wear shoes. That would be something. Give him a a little bit more than a scar, a car, and a foot fetish. Because it's Kurt Russell, and he does the best he can with what he's got. If he's got good, if he's got a hell of a script, he will knock that shit out of the park. It's true. This time. So, uh, speaking of Quentin Tarantino and characters, out of the uh, eight, eight films that Quentin Tarantino has made, does that even count Death Proof? It counts. All right. Out of those films, who is your number one favorite character? Oh, boy, oh, boy. I have a couple. Yeah, that's, um, that's fine. It's hard to have one. It's true. Um, number one, okay, no, I don't. A lot. Number one with a bullet, Beatrix Kiddo. Okay. Kiddo. Um, she is probably, without, even though she has more time to do it, um, has the most well-rounded uh, uh, um, character depth uh, applied to, uh, out of all the other characters of any Tarantino movie I could think of, like, when, when what we see her go through and what we see her accomplish even though the trajectory isn't exactly what we perceive it to be when it occurs and the endgame isn't exactly what we perceive it to be or even want it to be, is a natural progression for what she had to do, which was get revenge on an asshole named Bill. But there's more to it than that. And that's why I know Tarantino could have made a hell of a movie out of Death Proof. Because Kill Bill could have been like a slashing, you know, revenge flick, but it wasn't. It was a story about a woman who wanted to do right for herself and for the family that she never had. And it was... Two well-executed genre homages. Yeah, oh, so good. Like, Kill Bill may not be my favorite Quentin Tarantino movie, but Beatrix Kiddo is definitely my favorite Quentin Tarantino character. But what about you? Again, there are, it, it's hard to nail it down to one. Because as soon as you said Beatrix Kiddo, I was like, ah! But then there's Jules and Vincent in Pulp Fiction. You have... Uh, General Landa, Landa, uh, Colonel Landa, Colonel Landa. Uh, you know, at any any time Christoph Waltz gets behind a character, it's gonna be pretty awesome. Yeah, but who's the one character for you? Or Del Roby. Oh. Or Del Roby. Oh. Portrayed by the magnificent Samuel L. Jackson in Jackie Brown. Yeah. Again, we we talk oh, about this to bastard. each other all the time. Yeah. Jackie Brown is. Absolutely the most underrated film of Quentin Tarantino's uh, career Mm -hmm. because he made it uh, the third film and it was not the slam dunk home run in sports analogy follow up. It wasn't like a huge money maker because it's just him taking a story and telling it maturely and making it his own without. Yeah, wanking himself. Yeah, like um, uh, like Pulp Fiction was the natural um, succession to Reservoir Dogs. It took those tropes and elevated them to the realms of like high art. Mm-hmm. But Jackie Brown was a drama. Yeah, it was a muted, uh, action-filled dramedy with a lot of good wit, a lot of good humor, great characters, great yeah, cast. Yeah. Oh my god, that cast! Uh, De Niro, so unsung Michael in that Keaton. movie. 
Robert Forster. Come on. You come on. Pamela Greer. Yeah. Uh, but Sam Jackson, it's Bordell Roby. Mm -hmm. He's simultaneously, you know, he starts off the movie being kind of cool, being kind of yeah, creepy. He does and then he gets slimy. And, and then, then he becomes he, a fucker. Then he becomes a real scary dude. Yeah, a monster. Like, he's like the one of the most frightening people Quentin Tarantino ever put the celluloid. And, you know, he does it effectively without beating you over the head. Yeah. Like, that's the one thing that always kind of chat me about Hans Landa and Inglorious Bastards mm -hmm. is that, like, he's just kind of just speaking. And 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 uh, monologuing, mm -hmm. and that's what villains do, and that's what they're supposed to do. But he does it so, you know, charmingly that you find yourself getting lured in by him, and then he does something horrific. Mm -hmm. Well, villains don't have to do that. They can be charming without having to, like, you know, explain to you why they are charming. Or they can take longer than one monologue mm -hmm. to have that full arc. Like say an entire film. Well, exactly. AK-47, the very best there is. When you absolutely, positively got to kill every motherfucker in the room, except no substitutes. Well, you know, we got to start wrapping things up. Um, Want to remind people to uh, hit iTunes, uh, subscribe, rate, yeah, rate. review. Uh, tell your friends, tell your parents, tell your uh, church members yeah if you're a member of like the church of the flying spaghetti monster or yeah, church sure. of satan or something yeah um follow us on social media uh at doom rocket underscore at jared jones underscore i'm at bird money um doomrocket.com is the website um always have fun and exciting reviews features uh just added star wars rebels to the uh collection of television shows that we're keeping an eye on. And a lot more to come. I'm very excited about some of the shows we're going to be covering in the next couple of months. That sounds awesome. Yeah. Alright, well for, uh, for Jared Jones, my name's Matt, Birdman Fleming. Uh, we're Doom Rocket, and this was Anti-Monster. We'll smell you later. Yeah. Shut your ass, girl, you shut me up for yeah. Zion.